The letter that changed the world. The biblical theology of Romans. This is part nine. And uh, the text we're looking at tonight is Romans 3.31, so right kind of toward the end of Romans 3, and we'll go to 4.25. And I wanted to say this. It's a text that looks harder to follow than it actually is. And if you just, if you just a- apply some thought to it, there's some principles here, and I'm going to try as best I can to uh, unfold some of the main ideas that Paul packs into this. It's a tightly argued text. And by the way, that ought to tell you something about the Christian faith, that it isn't just a mystical experience that can't be rationalized or explained. The idea that um, as long as something is simple, it must be good, is so common in modern culture. A text has so many words in it, Instagram, you get pictures, and it's easy to follow everything. And we're not used to the kind of revelation God gives where he treats us as though we are human beings with the capacity for thought. And it ought to be encouraging to us that the biblical faith comes in logical, propositional truth, that it stands up, that it makes sense, that it's reasoned. That's a good thing. Um, I told you this before, years ago, years ago, lady left the, uh, no it wasn't, it was a, a man who left the church, and uh, I was kind of following up a little bit, and he was tired of having to go to a place where he had to think so much. All right, Romans chapter 3, 31, we're going to go to 425, and I'm going to start reading the whole text. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 4.1 What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I'll talk about that sentence in a minute because that's a confusing sentence. We will come back to it. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. We understand that. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, then his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now he's going to quote David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Still quoting David. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. End of quote. It's from the Psalms. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jews, 
or also for the uncircumcised, the rest of us. We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? It's a timing thing now. When, when was Abraham declared righteous? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It wasn't after, but before. You see what he's trying to do? Circumcision is not equated with righteousness, ethnic Judaism, because Abraham was pronounced righteous before. In fact, 25 years before. 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised. There it is. Abraham is the father of all the Gentiles. Right there. It's a striking thing. Imagine Paul's audience getting this. Middle of 11. The purpose was to make him the father of all who would believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Remember, he was justified, pronounced righteous 25 years before he was circumcised. 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would promise for the promise to Abraham, sorry, and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. That's when God gave that covenant to Abraham long before he was circumcised. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, if it's just the Jews, Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. He talks about, doesn't mean they're sinless. He means the, the law makes sin recognizable, official, observable. You, you can see the commandment broken in a way that you couldn't if the law wasn't there. 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's from Genesis. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. I was going to talk about Abraham. And Sarah, and the promise of offspring. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. That's how we usually exercise hope, isn't it? Pushing against something. Doesn't look like it, but that's what God said. Uphill hope. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, quote, so shall your offspring be. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Doesn't sound very complimentary, does it? 
as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of postmenopausal, in brackets, Sarah's womb, 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. It's the same thing as when he received the covenant. He believed it. Believed it. It looked impossible, but he believed it. 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours ours also. You, me, in this room. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right. As Paul wrapped up the third chapter and wraps up the third chapter, he anticipates a pretty important question. Uh, The question sets up Paul's argument for the whole next section of Romans. Chapters 2 and 3, that's where we've been for these pretty well 10 weeks, 1, 2, and 3. There were two main points that come out of those chapters. First, both Jews and Gentiles need salvation equally because they're all under the wrath of God. That's the big point. And then the second thing, both Jew and Gentile, the person with the Bible, the person without the Bible, the person with the law, the person without the law, the person with the outward sign of circumcision, the person without circumcision, both can only be pronounced righteous before God through faith, not through works. That was 28 to 30 in chapter 3 from last Sunday, where we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is he the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes. Gentiles also, since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith. The Jewish people will only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And that was a stunning truth to them. And the uncircumcised, verse 30, through faith. So, clear enough. All are guilty, Jew and Gentile. All will be justified by faith only, Jew and Gentile. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 boils down to. But there's a question. The question kind of pushes its way to the front of the line when all of this is said, and Paul wants to deal with it. If we're all saved through faith, apart from the works of the law, Jew and Gentile, what's the point of the law? Paul, are you saying let's just scrap the Old Testament? What is it worth? Why is it necessary? That's that's the question that's being asked. We read the question in verse 31 of tonight's text. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. There's an awful lot of people. This is not an irrelevant question. It's an awful lot of people. I talk to them all the time. You do too, who find perfect comfort in some area of neglect or disobedience to the clear will of God. And when you talk to them about it, they'll say, but we're justified by by faith, grace. Not by works. That's what Paul is dealing with here. By no means. On the contrary, we, we uphold the law. Now that... 
that statement actually was already hinted at earlier in Romans 1, 1 and 2. The very first words of the letter, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, listen, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now Paul's going to unpack this idea at length. He's going to take, in Pauline fashion, he's going to take the whole fourth chapter. He doesn't do it in a sentence. Paul does nothing in a sentence. He's going to take chapter 4 to prove the whole Old Testament backs up this point that we are all justified by faith apart from the works of the law, and the law always pointed to that. That's what Paul wants to say. And he has nobody better to go to in dealing with that issue than Abraham because, well, Abraham was just it in the Jewish mind. So point number one. Y'all okay? All right. Ron's okay. I feel good about that. How is Abraham justified before God? It's in the first five verses. <clears throat> what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? We're descendants of Abraham, the Jew. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I said I'd talk about that sentence, and I will. For what does the scripture say? Quoting Genesis, Abraham receives the covenant. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, end of quote. And so Paul says, now, the one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, but his due. You're entitled to it if you work for it. And to the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, if it's not work, then, then your faith will be counted as righteousness. So we really need to sort this out. How is Abraham saved? Well, for that matter, how were any of the Old Testament saints justified? I mean, Abraham's central place was pretty well known, especially to the Jews, our forefather, according to the flesh, 4-1. So, so Paul picks Abraham because if there's anybody who's going to be able to stand on righteous works, it looked like it would be Abraham. God calls him to leave his land, he leaves it. God calls him to, to, to be circumcised, later on he's circumcised. He does basically everything God tells him to do, a few flubs, but basically his performance is, is pretty good. So if anyone was going to have a special place before God on the basis of heritage, well, it would be Abraham. That's why Paul brings Abraham to the table. What was the basis for Abraham standing before God? And the Jews, they placed great stock in Abraham's righteousness before God. They admired Abraham. This is, I said I'd get to this sentence, this is recognized by Paul. He says his works may give him some good standing in man's eyes, but not in God's eyes. And that's that for if Abraham was justified by works, 4-2, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, his life looks pretty impressive. When we see all the things he sacrificed, all the things he did, the way he obeyed, it, it looks like he's got a pretty good standing, but Paul says that's just in man's eyes. That doesn't count in God's eyes. It's not enough in God's eyes, Paul says. 
Verses 3 and 5 tell us why no one, including Abraham, is justified before God on the basis of keeping the law. If, if you started at verse 5 and kind of worked backwards, Paul tells us there's only one kind of person that God justifies. You can look at it. And to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what, what Paul is saying, get this, there's only one kind of person God can justify. What kind of person is it? An ungodly person. Who justifies the ungodly. God only justifies ungodly people because, well, he has no other kinds of people to justify. We get that from Romans 1, 2, and 3. All are guilty before God. Jew and Gentile. All stand condemned before the law. So if God's going to justify anybody, including Abraham, he's only going to be able to work with ungodly people. He has no one else to justify. That's what he says in verse 5 of chapter 4. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul applies this to Abraham. Verse 3 is a quote. It's a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Clear as can be. All Abraham did was he believed the Lord, and God credited that to him as righteousness. So this was the point. This is the point where Abraham was pronounced righteous. And it's hundreds of years before the giving of the law. So he wasn't righteous because he kept the law. There was no law. And secondly, it was over a quarter of a century before anyone was circumcised. Abraham believed God, the bare promise of God, before the law and before circumcision, he was pronounced righteousness. So Paul's saying to these Jewish people, obviously it wasn't by works. Because the law wasn't even given to Moses yet. And there was no circumcision yet. That's Paul's point in verse 4. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. So if Abraham had worked for God's pronouncement of righteousness, then he earned it. He earned it like wages. But because there was no law yet given, and there was no ceremony of circumcision, marking God's covenant people, Abraham couldn't do anything to earn his righteousness. He simply believed God's promise. In other words, he was justified by faith plus nothing else. Point number two, if Abraham demonstrates how he was justified before the giving of the law, how were Old Testament saints declared righteous? Now you get the different issue Paul wants to deal with. He's very thorough. If they were justified by faith before the law, how were they justified after the law came and exposed all their sin? So Paul imagines someone making that argument. Well, of course Abraham was justified apart from the law. There was no law. There is for us. Jew and Gentile. You got a Bible. 
The law wasn't given for hundreds of years after Abraham, but now, now we have the law. Surely one must keep it in order to be justified before God. And so what Paul does, brilliantly, although it's not often noticed, he moves from Abraham to another Old Testament character. He moves from Abraham to David. Why do you think he'd pick David? Well, David lives after the law is given. So David is a perfect example of dealing with this argument. Romans 4, 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Now he quotes David. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And everyone said, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So those words come from David in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. And, and, and there's a reason Paul chooses those words. He chooses those words very carefully because the very same word, count, or reckon. Um, just as David also speaks, this is now Romans 4, 6, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from where Abraham believed God and it was counted to him. Paul's picking the very same term from a pre-law person and a post-law person because he wants to make a point And the most important point here is the way these verses define how God provides justification for David and for everyone who lives post-law, who has the revelation of God, who knows clearly God's will for right and wrong. And these words from David make clear that righteousness before God isn't a matter of having our good works counted for us. That's the argument he's working through with Abraham. Did Abraham have enough good deeds? No. There was no law to score points with. Circumcision wasn't around yet. Abraham was not justified, Paul says, by good works. He was justified by faith. Now he's going to talk about David, but it's, it's quite the opposite. After you have the law, and the, he already taught in Romans that the law condemns every one of us. Justification by faith is proven not the way it's talked about with Abraham, charting up our good works. But notice when he talks about David and Don Horbin and everybody else in this room, justification by faith is measured differently. It's measured post-law. God doesn't count our bad works against us. Abraham wasn't justified by his good works. We are justified because God doesn't count our bad works because we have the law. We all know we're sinners. The law condemns everyone. Paul said Jew and Gentile, they all stand condemned under the law. Not only do we not earn his favor with good deeds, we need to depend upon his grace for our bad deeds. This is Paul's point again in Romans 4, 5. To the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Point number three. With me still? 
a little less enthusiastic. Three. God's righteousness was counted to Abraham before he was circumcised. I won't read him. It's in 9, 10, 11, and 12. But it's a very important point. If I weren't pressed for time, I would take the time and reread those verses. Because Abraham, says Paul, was justified by faith and not works. And the timing, the timing of God's pronouncement of Abraham's justified state is important because it was long before he was circumcised, 25 years before he was circumcised. And that means that circumcision or any other religious ceremony or act isn't an instrument of righteousness, but a sign of faith already present. That applies to everything. Going to church, feeding the poor, looking after the needy, food baskets. You're not going to get to heaven by those things. Those are, those are manifestations of faith. But if you're thinking those good works are going to qualify you in God's eyes, you're misreading it badly. It's a relevant message for an age where just sort of a, a tolerant humanitarianism for everyone is viewed as being equal with godliness. And it never will be. It never will be. This was a stunning bit of news to the Jews of Paul's day. We, we, we can't imagine what this sounded like. Paul telling them that circumcision had no independent value. It couldn't bring entrance into the people of God. God justified Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. God justified Abraham when he was a Gentile. There was no Jewish people. Have you ever thought about that? Four. The works of the law have never been a foundation for justification for Abraham or for anyone else. We're, we're two-thirds done. Chapter 4, verse 13. Four verses I want to read. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That's the nations, right? Not just Jews, the nations. Did not come through the law, it predates the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who were to be heirs, if it's, if it's just the descendants of Abraham, those circumcised Orthodox Jews, then faith is null and the promise is void, because the promise was to the nations, he says. 15. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. I already said, it doesn't mean people were sinless, but, but trans transgression isn't marked, it isn't visible, it isn't official in the way of boundaries are clearly defined. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For it is written, quote, from Genesis now, I have made you the father of many nations, end of quote. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence those things that do not exist. 
the point here, and this has something to do with uh, the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture reaching down into the words of Scripture, the words that are chosen and the words that are used. And I can't think of a better example of that than, than this. The point is that the promise of the seed, it was given to Abraham not because of his keeping of the law. The promise of the seed was given to Abraham 400 years before the law. But then Paul makes this point. Is that Galatians reference in your notes? Okay, Galatians 3, 15 to 18. This is really striking now. Look at what he says here. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Thinking now of the covenant of Abraham before the law. The covenant with Abraham. The seed, all the nations being blessed through faith. 16, Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. Singular and plural makes a big difference. The inspiration extends to singular and plural. The letters in the word. And to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. This is what I mean, he says. The law, which came 430 years after this covenant with Abraham, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Paul is he's, he's piling up evidence for his case here. He, he's taking a lot of time, bulky sentences, ruling out all the false options for how we're going to be right with God. If Abraham was not justified by his circumcision nor was he justified by keeping the law. And if God only justifies the ungodly, Romans 4, 5, then it stands to reason that he was counted or credited with righteousness as a result of his faith in God. There's still one more reason, one more reason why neither Abraham nor anyone else, you, me, no one in any religion, can earn justifying righteousness through the keeping of the law. We're down to 15 and 16 now in chapter 4. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no, that no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So these verses teach that far from using the law as a means of earning righteousness, the law does something that doesn't help us a bit. The very presence of the law, he says, establishes guilt and promotes God's wrath. It makes sin official. It turns sin into an accountable transgression before God. Use, using the law 
to eliminate sin is like using kerosene to extinguish a fire. It won't work. It won't work. And that's why Moses, Exodus 20, up the mountain he goes twice. Finally gets the law of God, the finger of God carving the law of God into these tablets of stone. Okay? That's Exodus 20, verses 1 to 20. Do you know what happens in Exodus 20, verse 21? In other words, the next verse. After the giving of the law is complete, it takes 20 verses, and the very next verse, do you know what God says to Abraham? Build an altar. Think about that. First the law, all the commandments. Moses goes up and he gets the commandments. And the very next thing God says to him, and they're there at the mountain for a long, long time, build an altar. God knows the law will increase inward sin. The giving of the law makes the necessity of atonement obvious. The law was always designed to do this, to point us to faith in Christ. It's, faith isn't contrary to the law. The law drives us to faith in Christ and redemption. And so, Moses, Exodus 24, 3 and 4, he came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules, okay? And all the people answered with one voice and said, look at these silly people. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. They're not going to get off the mountain and they're going to have to start repenting of sin. Five. What is justifying faith and what does it do? Romans 4.17. As it is written, now the quote from Genesis to Abraham. God speaks to Abraham. I have made you the father of many nations. End of quote. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What's he thinking of there? Calls into existence things that do not exist. Well, he's thinking of Isaac, the birth of Isaac, which was an impossibility. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations, as he had been told, quote, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distress made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, we're meant to see something here. We're meant to see the parallels between Abraham's justifying faith and our justifying faith. 
Now, Abraham's faith wasn't in exactly the same object. He didn't have the full revelation of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, God the Son, like we have today. But he had a word from God. He had a promise. And Paul wants us to take note exactly of that process of faith in the heart of Abraham because it's exactly the same process, even though we have a fuller revelation in terms of the object of our faith. And here's the most direct parallel. Here's the direct parallel. Abraham, Abraham believed God to accomplish something for him that he could never accomplish by himself, right? Surely that's the point. Abraham and Sarah, this is not going to work. Both he and Sarah are too old. He couldn't accomplish this by his own works. That's the point. But Abraham believed God's promise. He believed God's promise to do what he could not do on his own. God would provide what God had promised. And so the conclusion is in verse 22. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. Now, the last point, six. How this relates. Romans 4, 23 to 25. But the words it was counted to him. Isn't this interesting? You, you read that. You read that in Genesis, and then Paul quotes it. And Paul says very clearly, when God said that to Abraham, and we have these words written down, they weren't written down for Abraham. They were written down for Don Horbin. They were written down for you. God included those words in Scripture for you. He was thinking of you. The words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The same idea. Just as surely as Abraham and Sarah could not make this happen by themselves, but believed the promise of God, now this whole idea of righteousness, cleansing, forgiveness, eternal life, it's not something we can do. Of course it can't be works. All the law does is prove us sinners. God has to justify the ungodly. So how is he going to do that? Well, just as surely as... Let me, let me say something that might surprise you. The imagery works like this. Just as surely as... Sarah couldn't give birth to Isaac. Good as dead. Then you have the virgin birth of Jesus, the Messiah. God in the flesh. An absolute miracle that no human work could ever produce or accomplish. And just as surely as all Abraham had, all Abraham had, God bless him for believing what he had. Just believing that God said, through you, the nations of the earth, there's going to be a seed. Not seeds, seed. It's going to come for all the nations. And I'm going to do it through you and Sarah. Believe it or not, you just believe. And you come and I come and... My goodness. This is not just irrelevant truth, church. You come. Have you ever come and knelt and felt like, I just, I, I'm 
I've, I've gone too far this time. I just repeat the same sin over and over again, and God must be sick of it because I'm sure sick of it. I can't stand myself. How is this ever going to work? And I don't seem to be able to produce in my own heart the kind of righteousness that a holy God would require. And Paul would say, well, you need to remember Abraham and Sarah. And you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't accomplish it. You can't work this. You can't earn this. But the good news is, from David, God doesn't count our trespasses against us when we're in Christ. There's trust the promise. What else? Well, there is nothing else, Don. You just have to trust the promise. And there's hope for all who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, that's the long way home, how Paul gets there, because he just, Paul does not want to leave any stone unturned when it comes to Jesus. You have to put your faith in Jesus. God bless Paul for that. God bless Paul for that. And let's never let it slip from our grasp, all right? Let's pray.